0: Join the guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting MaxLawEvents.com.
1: Run your law firm the right way. The right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer podcast. podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mewtrips. Let's partner up and maximize your firm do the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. This is episode 15. I'm one of your hosts, Jim Hacking.
2: And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy?
1: Tyson, my friend. How are you, sir?
2: I'm good. I just got back from a run, so I feel good. It's nice.
1: Did you get your run today? No, I got a 5K tomorrow. So. uh I gotcha. So today we're talking about the five signs that you aren't taking this whole solo lawyer thing seriously. And I'll tell you how this topic came to my mind in a little bit when we get to one of the points. But I thought that having sort of a little bit of structure to the podcast might be good. We've been talking about this off and on. So I think that this is a great topic for us today.
2: You came up with the list. I'm going to give you the credit. But if anybody has any problems with it, email Jim and yell at him. Although I do agree with every one of them. So I'm going to blame you and give you the credit at the same time.
1: Yeah, I will say that I thought it was a little bit harsh the way I framed it. I think that's okay, though. We're trying to push people a little bit to be their best. So I think we get a pass on that. I agree. So what's number one? All right, number one is you answer your own phone. I think that answering your own phone as a lawyer is a real problem for several reasons. Number one is I think it telegraphs to potential clients that you're really not that busy. Number two, it telegraphs that you don't have enough of a business going to be able to afford someone to answer your phone. Number three, I think it demonstrates that you're sort of desperate for the call. And I think it also, number four, takes away from your ability to do good work, that if you're jumping to answer the phone every two minutes or whenever someone calls, you're really beholden to the phone. And I think that it really keeps you from doing good work.
2: The two main takeaways for me is that, one, it's a lack of time management on your part, because most of us, probably if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are busy because there's a reason why you're listening to this podcast. The other thing is, it's you already kind of touched on, is the perception that the clients have of you. You may tell yourself, oh, the clients like it, that they can get a hold of me. But you know what? The vast majority of the clients, whenever they call, they're expecting a receptionist or someone answering their phone because it's more professional. And it just gives them a better feel of who they're dealing
1: with. I mean, I don't take any unplanned phone calls. If someone wants to talk to me on the phone, that's fine. I'm happy to talk to clients. I generally don't talk to potential clients on the phone ever.
2: When you told me that, that really surprised me because I, I don't answer my own phone, obviously, and I don't take unscheduled phone calls from current clients and a lot of other people. But I've got two exceptions, and that is if I get a call from a judge or a court clerk. Sure. Or And the other one is is new clients. So And that, it really surprised me when you told me that a while back that you don't take new calls from clients. But you've got those systems in place. There's a reason why because you have someone screening it and then setting up your appointments, right?
1: Yeah, if I spend all my time answering, I mean, our phone rings here literally, and I, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but it, it literally rings here probably 30 times a day. Sure. So okay. if I was taking phone calls, even from potential new clients, that's at least 10 of them. So I think that would just be really distracting. And and we do, you know, it takes a little bit for our systems to kick in and for our front desk persons to know how to screen the case. But there's a whole protocol that he goes through where he asks them, you know, their basic information, what their legal issue is. And then and only then do they get to schedule a time to see with me. I think it's really important to distance yourself from that. I think that I got a lot of this from Dan Kennedy. He's very rigorous about that, about, you know, not making yourself available 24-7, about batching your phone calls and using your phone at the right time.
2: I think you and I both use call scripts. You've got yours built into Infusionsoft. I just train my people on it, and they, now they've got it memorized. It's basically if this, then this, if this, then this, but it's kind of like a culture in a way. There's something that I've been reading in The Ultimate Sales Machine where he teaches his employees the top six questions to do this, the top five things for this. You know, So he gives them these kind of like mnemonic devices on how to remember things, and he tests them on it. And something that I've been thinking about doing with my employees on phone calls is like the top six questions you ask a potential injury client. Things like that, so that they can screen those clients for me to basically do the same thing you're doing, without me implementing that. Though I'm not gonna feel comfortable with them doing it. But if I think if I put that system in place like you have, I think that's an easy way of doing it. As long as you you're giving them the questions to ask, they basically check box, check box, check box. Okay, they meet these requirements. Let's go ahead and schedule them for an appointment.
1: I think that's a great way of doing it. Yep. Because what you want when you're doing your intake with new clients, you just want a steady stream of people who are ready and are the proper kinds of clients for you. You don't want to have to be wasting your time with people who, you know, I would say we get a fair number of calls here for kinds of cases that we don't do. And we either send them to you or to someone else that's appropriate. Right. I think one of the problem with answering the phone is that sometimes people think, oh, it's just a quick call. I only have one quick question. Let me just hop on the phone with Jim and ask him this and then I'll be able to move on. That's not how we're doing it. I don't mind helping people. I like to help people. That's sort of what we do. But giving out free advice or advice over the phone, that's going to prevent them from ever becoming a client. I also think it's going to prevent them from ever taking you seriously as a legal services provider.
2: Yeah, and I think the I can't remember the number. I think the average phone call is 10 minutes or seven minutes or something like that. So if you did that with every single person, your entire day has been eaten up. So you make, a, you make a really good point. You, if you spend your time answering those little small questions, you're gonna have no time to do anything else. And so I think you're right, I think that's important.
1: All right, go with number two.
2: All right, number two. Number two is you have a Gmail or Yahoo email account or something like a Hotmail or whatever. I think that was a, a very smart one to point out. And a lot of that just has to do with, do you look professional, I think? Are you taking this seriously? And no, anytime an attorney gives me a Gmail or a Yahoo account, I think it's ridiculous. I think it's part of it, it and maybe you just don't understand technically how it works. But if you pay someone ten bucks, twenty bucks to fix it, it's easy to do. It really is. It makes all the difference. I mean, I would be a little sheepish if I were to to give a client a Gmail address as my professional address. I think that that's it. Just seems unprofessional.
1: The one that really gets me is, I don't know why, but when I see sbcglobal.net, I just go crazy when a lawyer has that in their email address. I don't know why I take that personally, but it's actually yesterday I was dealing with a client on a case that I've sort of taken over, an immigration case where I sued the immigration service for this guy who's been waiting for four years for his wife to come from Pakistan. And he hired me to go ahead and file that lawsuit. And I didn't know that he had a prior attorney involved. And the State Department was referencing some Gmail address that didn't make sense. It had no link to my client's name. And I was like, who the heck is this person? And the person, the client said to me, oh, that's my old lawyer. So <laughs> I, I was just like, wow. I mean, you're like you said, I mean, you can, you can get a domain name of whatever you want and you can you know, use whatever address you want. So there's really absolutely no reason for it. I, I, I guess the one the one caveat would be for people that have really really old email addresses, like they've been using that for years and years. But I think I think there's easy redirects where you could start using your old email, and you could get both emails in one account while keeping your old one, but starting to use a new one. I think you got to phase that out.
2: If you have a Gmail account, you can actually. You can do that. So you can you can have unlimited number of emails. Like whenever you send an email out, it shows whatever email you want. So it, I in my firm account, I've got my Mutrix Law firm account. However, in my personal Gmail account, I can also scroll down and choose. I think I've got six different domains. Tyson at, you know, I think one's wants st, the Stl injury Lawyer.com, another one's the DWI Lawyer.com or STL DWI lawyer.com. A bunch of those where I, I used to be able to use those. And I still could if I wanted to, so that whenever they're getting that email from you, it looks like it's from a a, actual dedicated firm email, which that's all you really need. You don't have to go and set up a special account if you don't want to, even though I think it's important to keep a business account separate from your personal account.
1: For lots of reasons. Anything else on that?
2: Yeah. One thing you just mentioned the SPC global that, and that this is something funny I want to talk about. I helped Matt Fry with his judicial committee campaign and it's funny because we had access to all the email addresses for people in St. Louis area. Lawyer. For lawyers, yes, all lawyers. And the vast majority had their own firm firm accounts. But then number one was Gmail. Then it was Yahoo. And then it was SBC Global.net, which I really surprised, was surprised by that. I thought it would be like a Hotmail or something like that. But there's a bunch of attorneys with the, the SBC net email address. So I don't
1: know why I take such a front to it. I mean, I think it's a clunky address. I don't know.
2: I know. I, I do too. It's just, it is. It's it's funny. Every time someone gives that to me, I'm like, why don't you just change this? I don't even know what SBC Global is. I mean, is it like a really old, is it like internet? It's
1: like- Southwestern Bell, man. So it's like part of AT&T. It's like, it's that old. <laughs> That's crazy. So, hey, maybe we should start a company helping lawyers get real domain names. Yeah, this is a good idea.
2: Although we wouldn't be focusing, we wouldn't be taking our own advice. So Number here.
1: three. Yes. Number three. Go ahead. You meet with potential clients at Starbucks or Panera.
2: Oh, man, this is a rough one. And it's here's the thing. There are some attorneys that are willing to jump out of their office and meet their client wherever, which I think is a bad idea. You meet all of your clients in the office, right?
1: Yep, and that's the main reason we have the office. Otherwise we could do what we do anywhere. Yeah. So I
2: meet ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of mine in, in the office. And I that's I think that's rare for a personal injury attorney. And most personal injury attorneys will tell you, Oh, I've got a you gotta you gotta hustle. You gotta get out there. No, you just got their own leads. You're getting those billboard clients, you're getting the ones that are gonna be too demanding. Uh, aren't going to come to you if they're seriously injured i'm obviously going to meet with them somewhere if I, to, so they don't have to come into the office but other than that i'm not gonna you know stop my day just to run out of the office i'm gonna schedule an appointment at my office at a convenient time for both of us it, it just screams desperation it, doesn't it i mean no isn't that with that, that when you're meeting them at starbucks and and, and I, mean, Panera? I,
1: I totally get that in the personal injury context there's times where you're going to go to the hospital You're going to go to their house where they're rehabbing. And when I was doing personal injury, I certainly did that from time to time. It's a service for the clients and it helps you, you know, helps them. But I guess what I'm talking about are more regular visits where like you're sort of just planning to meet with people. I mean, one time I was at the Panera in Brentwood and some dude who's he wasn't he might not have been a lawyer, but he set up. He had his laptop and he had two monitors on his (laughs) on the table at the bread company and I have seen lawyers meeting with clients and I've, I've more importantly, I've heard lawyers, yes, meet with clients at the bread company. Yes. And that's the real problem. I mean, put aside ethics and obviously there's ethical problems with, you know, talking to people in public about their legal issues. There's huge issues related to that, but just, I think you're right. I think that the desperation of it, and again, it telegraphs that you're sort of small potatoes that you don't make enough money to spend money on an office. And Or you don't care enough. And, you know, there's office space you can rent. There's relationships that you can develop with other attorneys just to use their conference room. I think all that stuff is fine. I just think that you just are signaling. I think a lot of the things we're talking about today are signals. Signals to potential clients. Signals to other attorneys that you're not in it for the long haul. You're not committed to this and you're not, you know, pushing yourself to really excel.
2: Yeah, I was actually just last week at a Starbucks in Clayton, the one on Wydown and um, Hanley. And I'm literally three feet away from this other table where this attorney is meeting with a client. It's a divorce client, and they're talking about the divorce. And I could not believe it. I just could not believe I was hearing. I could hear every single thing they were talking about. They were talking about how the husband was hiding money, all this stuff. I was just like, what what do you not get about me being three feet away from you? Like, this is insane. And it wasn't like I came and sat down next to them. They came down and sat next to me and started to talk about a divorce. It's insane. we we on number four? Yes, sir. Oh, this is one of my favorites. You lower your fee when pressured by a potential client. Go ahead. Tell me what you got. Tell me your thoughts.
1: So my wife is from Egypt. And if there's anyone who knows how to haggle, it's my wife. And she is brutal one time her mother and i were at a bazaar and her mother wanted a, a handkerchief and the handkerchief was $20 and her, her mom offered $1 jeez and she and the salesperson went into this back and forth i think without ever talking just showing each other numbers either with dollar bills or with the person's hands and he was just clicking that it wasn't enough and i think they eventually sold it for $4 so my wife has forbidden me from lowering my fees. And it's been a great excuse for me. She says, point to those pictures of the four kids over there and say, you've got to feed those kids. And then if you come home having lowered your fees, you're in big trouble. And I say all that jokingly. I think that it's very important that you set a fee for yourself that's fair to you, fair to them. I think I would encourage people to be on the higher side of the average. I think you don't want to be dealing with the clients who are looking for the lowest cost denominator. And I think we've even talked on this podcast, the other main reason I don't like lowering my fee is that, you know, we are advocates and we should be forceful advocates and we want our clients to be confident in us. And I think that if right out of the box, they balk at a fee and we fold to them, not only do I think that telegraphs to them that we will fold when dealing with other, like for you negotiating with another attorney or for me dealing with the government, I think it also sets the tone for the relationship where they're going to sort of boss you around and set the tone of the representation. And I think that's a very dangerous place for lawyers to be.
2: Yeah. And I think some attorneys, they're not willing to discuss fees over the phone um, because of that same reason they want to get them in the room. I'm okay with discussing fees over the phone with clients, but whenever they ask me over the phone, well, such and such says, they will do it for this amount. And I'll say, okay, we'll hire them. You primarily see it with, at least for me, with criminal defense stuff, you do yours more on a, uh, a flat fee. So you probably see a lot more than I do just because I do a lot more personal injury now. But it's really funny, even with personal injury and it's only your clients that you refer to me that do this to me because <laughs> usually they are from another country and they're used to haggling. They will stare me in the face and it, I've, I've gotten really good practice because of your clients. And so now I feel like I can, I can stare down the best people and Jamal, um, I'm not going to say his last name, but right. you know who I'm talking about. He looked me st- straight in my face and Marwan was sitting right next to him and he, he looks at me he says, well, will you take a list? And I said, and I looked at him, I said, no, I don't lower my fees. And he just stared at me for 30 seconds, like didn't say a word. And I didn't,
1: I, I had not it. That's practice. the silence. Yes. The silence yes. is what kills you. Yes.
2: And so I learned my lesson from your clients. And so I just sat there and looked at him and he he did it again. He said, you won't lower your fee? And I said, no, I don't lower my fee. And then he, he did the pause again. He said, he looked at me and said, Okay. And that was it. It was like, okay, they signed the contract. But it's just, it's really funny. It's they they're going to sign with you most of the time. If you reduce your fee, you're just leaving money on the table because they they know they know there's a lot of desperate attorneys out there. And so they're going to do that. People are smart. Okay. They're smart. they They're going to try and get the best deal possible.
1: Yeah. And that's at not, your expense. But you're right. It does take some skill and some expertise and some experience in doing it because that silence after they ask you. It can be painful and you probably want the case, so you're probably jumping around it. But I think you just sort of have to steel yourself and say going in. I mean, I just I'm completely matter of fact about it. I don't I don't act sheepish or apologetic. I was like, no, I don't do that. No way.
2: Yeah. And here's the other thing is you, you say I work really hard on my cases. I'm not lowering my fee for that reason. I put a lot more work in these other attorneys and they're there. And I call them the five hundred dollar attorneys on the criminal stuff because there's these guys will take any case for five hundred dollars, but they're going to touch your file twice. They're gonna they're they're gonna uh, take your money and then they're gonna plead you out. That's it. And so that's why I tell them. I say, listen, we we put a lot of work into these cases, and so I'm not gonna reduce my fee. And they get it. I mean, they they understand it. They're just trying to get a good deal.
1: I'm not, Which you can't blame them.
2: No, no, I don't blame them at all. I, you just gotta you gotta resist it. Go for number five.
1: Yeah. So this is one that we've touched on in the past, but I think it's important again on that telegraphing message or the signals that you're sending out, and that is number five. You offer six or more practice areas on your website. So certainly there are law firms that handle lots of different kinds of cases, but hopefully there aren't lawyers who on their website say that they do six or seven. I mean, I was on a website the other day. There's a guy, he had 12 practice areas, Insane. 12 practice areas. And so to me, that just screams, you know, what is that phrase? Master of none. What is it? It's
2: Jack of all trades, master of none.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. I mean, I think you're just telegraphing that you'll do anything that walks in the door, that you're not discriminatory about what kind of cases you want or what kind of clients you you want. I also think it shows that, you know, you don't, you probably don't have the systems or the expertise built out to handle a particular matter.
2: I've talked to some attorneys about this and the reason that they put a lot of practice areas, even though they may not take all of them, is they tell me that it's because it makes their firm look bigger. And although the size of your firm may be important to some clients, those may not be the clients you want. That's one thing I want to tell you. The other thing is, is it doesn't matter if it looks bigger or not. You have no marketing message. And so if you're trying to create a target market, how can you target them? The shotgun approach doesn't work. You have to, whenever they come to your website, you have to strike a chord with them in some way. And usually that's a lead magnet. That's not we do a bunch of things. It's it's some sort of lead magnet. And to create a lead magnet, it usually has to be something specific to your practice area. So it's really, even though you think as an attorney, an ego thing, yeah, this is going to make my firm look huge because I do all these practice areas, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you're going to get the client. You have to have a, a targeted message towards your client to draw them in to get them to contact
1: you. I don't really see how listing lots of practice areas if there's only one attorney makes your firm look bigger.
2: Well, I'm not saying I agree with that, but that's the response I get from people, and I I agree with that. I I think that people see through it and say, hey, this guy just wants to look big. You look at the attorneys on his website. It's just him. It's It's no one else. It's not a big firm.
1: Yeah, the only way I think you could do multiple practice areas is if you had a website devoted to each practice area. Where you're de-emphasizing the attorney you're emphasizing the practice area and providing lots and lots of information about that one particular practice area a bland website that has a laundry list of practice areas is going to do nothing nothing in seo and you're going to get punished for it because no one's going to hang out on your website because it's just as general as can be
2: okay so let's say that someone calls you for an immigration case right and it's clear from your website and all your marketing materials that you just do immigration However, let's say that, that same person has met with the guy that has 12 practice areas on his website. You're going to be able to use that to your advantage and say, listen, I, this is all I do. I don't, I, don't, I don't waste my time with other stuff. It, it's impossible to know all practice areas. It's, it's hard to, to know more than two. And you're going to really leverage that. And they're going to hire you. If it's between you and them, they're going to hire you. That's what's going to happen because that's all you do. This is your main focus area. Right. Nice. I think this is actually a really good list. We covered all five, right?
1: We did. We're done.
2: Wow. Our tip
1: hack. You are really gonna be surprised when I tell you what my hack of the week is.
2: Um okay.
1: For the last two weeks, when I leave the office, I shut down my computer, which I never do, and I do not look at email or social media after I get home.
2: Wait, wait, on Friday? Every day. Oh, every day, okay. So I
1: am I am no longer looking at emails at home before I go to bed or in the time between when I'm home with my kids and having dinner. And I don't look at it again until I get back to the office. So the two changes I've made are not looking at my phone after I leave the office. And the other one is not looking at it at all in the car, sitting at stoplights and all that stuff. And the mental space that I've had has really increased. I really feel like, well, first of all, I'm actually doing something at home called reading books. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which, which I have been complaining about that I can't read books because I can't focus because I don't have enough time. I, I've made it through half a book and I'm back on Gary V. the Ask Gary Vee book. I'm halfway through that. So I have rekindled my love of reading and, and I've been spending better time with my kids. And I'm a lot less jittery and distracted about what's going on at the office when I'm at home.
2: Okay. I like it. I am actually shocked by that. That's really surprising to me. That would explain why whenever I send you text messages, you don't respond to me. And yeah. I, that makes perfect sense. Okay. My tip of the week is one. I just uh, kind of touched on the ultimate sales machine. It is a really incredible book. Yep. It is by, um, Chet Holmes. Yes. Chet Holmes. Thank you. Uh, Chet Holmes. He is, I mean, I think most people have heard of Chet Holmes and I honestly, I don't like listening to him speak. I think he's just too, um, just too much of that raw, raw stuff. But his book, it is actually, he, he gets, he gets down to the point whenever he's talking about things. He, he truly talk. Have you read the book yet?
1: So I did read the book. I think I've even mentioned it on this podcast. And the the thing that I said is if I could implement everything in that book and the 12 week year, if I did those two things, I don't need anything else. It's, it's a brilliant book. The only bad thing about it is the title.
2: Oh, I agree. I agree. I think that it's, it's off base.
1: it's way off base. It's a great book on how to run your business. It's one of the smartest things I've ever read. I actually listened to it and then I bought it in hard copy so I could mark it up. It's it's a tremendous book.
2: You know why the name of the book is Ultimate Sales Machines. So we've talked about this before. It's why Ben Glass marketing is his great little marketing is what it is. He Ben Glass talks about a lot of other things, not just marketing, but it, people know that the the lifeblood of a firm is bringing in those clients, and so. That's why he calls it the ultimate sales machine, even though it's somewhat misleading. That's what gets people to buy the book. But I'm glad. I'm glad that that's what it was. And Jim Manning recommended it to me, me and you, I think, as, as well. But it draws people in. But it's, it's a great book on how to run a company. I mean, just in general, from hiring employees to answering the phones, to managing your time. It,
1: and the, the team building and working on projects together.
2: Yes. Oh, it, it's such a good, good book. So over the last two weeks, we've been implementing some of that stuff. I have implemented the Dream Manager Program, which is from another book, but they go hand in hand with a lot of this stuff. So it's, it's, it is really good. And I'll talk about the Dream Manager Program it's on, on another podcast. But um, that's all I got, man.
1: All right, bud. Well, we'll talk next week and make it a good one.